Love Talk Radio. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. My guest joining me tonight is Dean Alexander Peters, and Mr. Peters is a cultural uh, historian and collector, and uh, has numerous exhibits of his work, particularly at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem, New York, also at the Smithsonian Institute, or the Smithsonian Museum, excuse me, and also at the NBC Production of Roots. Good evening, Mr. Peters. How are you? Fine, thank you, sir. Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, good. Talk to us about how you got into the collection, the rare collection business of uh, rare African-American articles. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, um, I've always been uh, interested in our history, uh, always been interested in our culture. Actually, I you know, not only grew up immersed in it, but I actually have a minor from college in African-American studies. So I've, I've always wanted to really focus on knowing more about our history and learning more about our history. Uh, and growing up, I was also a collector of sorts, uh, you know, as a young, young person, everything from coins and, you know, old newspapers, that kind of things. My, my parents used to take me to several flea markets and to yard sales and they would always say that I always look for, you know, old things that were just kind of unique. And I remember still having my coin collection. So, so all that having been said, I guess when I got into my 20s, I started just to kind of uh, intertwine the two and look for items, documents, things that would document our history as African-American people, uh, you know, tangible Evidences, tangible pieces that I could find, be they newspaper articles, be they books, uh, various ephemera, that were very significant, that were historic, that were not demeaning, that were not derogatory. And that's how I kind of grew the collection, um, you know, focusing initially on, of course, the period of our enslavement, and then, you know, broadening that, uh, you know, to contemporary times all the way up into the Black Panther movement. So I, you know, the collection has, you know, kind of grown and, you know, I'm pretty proud of just what I've been able to assemble and what I've been able to find and to, um, to research. How did you uh, get into Madam C.J. Walker's uh, Inside Her Mansion and her estate? And tell our audience, some of our younger people may not know the story of Madam C.J. Walker. 
Sure. Um, Madam C.J. Walker, a phenomenal African-American, um, you know, ancestor of ours. Uh, she was born in the late 1860s, about 1867, and died in 1919. And she was actually the first self-made African-American millionaire. Um, uh, and that would be turn of the century that she had amassed, you know, her monetary holdings and she was an entrepreneur and she developed her craft and her trade just in terms of her ingenuity. She actually made and developed hair care products and would then sell those hair care products and also how then to have proper care of especially ladies' hair care uh, back in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s uh, into the turn of the century so that, you know, African-American ladies would have access to proper hair care and have the ability to probably take care of their hair. So she was able to entrepreneurially develop her company, the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, um, utilizing things that she's learned and also things that she thought would be a benefit to her people, to our people. And she wound up uh, becoming a millionaire, um, you know, through just her resourcefulness and through her entrepreneurship. And she actually built a mansion up in Irvington on Hudson, upstate New York. And she also had a brownstone, a double wide brownstone right on 136th Street, just off of uh, Lenox Avenue, where the County Culling Library sits today. So she definitely was a you know, person ahead of her time. I, I think a lot more should be known about her, not more should be told about her, just in terms of her entrepreneurship, uh, her business savvy, her intuitiveness, and also she was a you know, race-first person. She was a very um, supportive of African-American causes, of the NAACP, of the, the Colored YMCA, of a lot of causes that could turn the century that she thought would help and advance her people. So that's just a you know brief tidbit of Madam C.J. Walker and her history, and I encourage young people to definitely know and you know, appreciate all that she had done and you know had done for her people, for sure, our people. Totally agree. And how did you gain access to her estate? The one, is that the one in Upper New York? And yeah. The Brownstone, or does it include both? Uh, that would be the um, the one upstate. The brownstone is no longer um, in existence. The brownstone was actually torn down when they built the County Culling Library, uh, which sits, if anyone knows in New York, it sits right behind the Schomburg Center. So when they built the County Culling Library, it sits in the footprint of where Madam C.J. Walker's uh, New York City Harlem brownstone was. But her mansion that is in upstate New York, um, I was I was very you know fortunate, very blessed that day. It was just one of those um, circumstances where I was uh, taking my mother for for a drive. She's like 81 and you know had been having some health challenges. So you know I told her it was a, a weekend that you know I had a little bit of free time. So I told her I you know take her for a, you know a Sunday drive. And I actually I've driven by the mansion before. 
uh, knew where it was. So I told my mother that, you know, we would just drive up and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, take a look at the mansion and, you know, enjoy a Sunday afternoon driving. You know, as fate would have it, you know, I was definitely blessed, uh, you know, the will of God that as we were driving by, I happened to see some folk, you know, outside, you know, there and, you know, kind of pulled over and started talking. You know, lo and behold, I did not know that, you know, it was the owner of the of the property, um, you know, Miss Miss Doley, uh, Helena Doley. Um, she and her husband, you know, African American couple and family. Um, she and her husband, um, Ambassador Harold Doley, and his wife Helena, they've owned the mansion for about thirty years, and you know, has done they've done all the restoration themselves on it. So, and just coming and speaking to the you know, folk that were, you know, just a couple of people that were just happened to be there and I identified myself and it, it turns out that, you know, we have several mutual friends because um, the great, great, great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, Alelia Bundles, um, she's a noted journalist, uh, novelist, and has written several books on Madam C.J. Walker. She's a personal friend of mine. So, you know, as I was able to, you know, speak about, you know, of course, my knowledge and my respect for Madam C.J. Walker and, you know, with our mutual friends and, you know, Miss um, Dolly was very gracious to invite my mother and I in to the grounds and into, you know, to tour the estate and to, to tour, you know, all to, to take the tour, a private yeah. tour of the estate and of the grounds. So it was, you know, just a blessing and, and something that I've always cherished. You said they've owned that for over 30 years now? Yes, yes, yes. They, 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 they would tell the story that you know they had purchased the property, and it was you know in such disarray that they personally had to you know bring it back to its state of grandeur, and that was a labor of love for them because it's privately owned and being privately owned by them and their family. And it's just something that they wanted to do on behalf of our people and on behalf of the history and in homage to Madam C.J. Walker. So it was a, a labor of love that, you know, they as a family have done and continue to do in terms of maintaining and living in the residence and also being able to, you know, have that as part of our history, a, a, a tangible part of our history that fortune is not lost to time. And um, is this open year-round? How does one arrange to uh, tour the mansion? Well, it's actually not a museum because it's their home, so it's not open for tours um, because, as I mentioned, it, it's, it's privately owned. It, it's, it's their home. Um, there, there may be various functions that actually you know, go on, at the at their home, but it's not a tourist place per se. It has been designated in terms of some protective status. But recently, I do know, um, in speaking with um, you know Miss Bundles, Alilia Bundles, who, as I mentioned, is the great 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 granddaughter, and you know, folks should definitely know about her. Her website is Alilia Bundles. Dot com, A-L-E-L-I-A-B-U-N-D-L-E-S, because she's done a lot of work in support of the mansion and in support of the Dolly family. 
And I do know that there's been some recent initiatives through the National Historic Trust that want to broaden the experience and the exposure of the residents just so that it can have certain public access, that it can then be, you know, in a position that, you know, other people can definitely share and appreciate all that the private family has done at this point. Okay, now you are a collector of African-American artifacts. Which of your collections are you most proud of, and, and for what reason are you proud? Sure. Um, several things jumped to mind initially. Um, like I mentioned, I, my, my collection ranges from slavery items, from shackles to neck collars to documents, saying first edition books, all the way into uh, civil rights pieces, uh, you know, into Black Panther pieces, Marcus Garvey, um, Home Renaissance. So it spans the course of time there. I guess some of the most precious items that I have would probably be the manumission papers from the 1830s, 1840s. Um, you know, they're handwritten and they're manumission papers, freedom papers, if you will, your freedom pass. And, you know, that would that would have been the document that, uh, you know, your slave ancestor would have definitely cherished if, you know, his or her master or um, owner, you know, would have actually granted freedom to our ancestors. So, you know, to having to hold a manumission paper, and that paper would have obviously been something that that ancestor would have had to have kept on their person. And we'll see that in the documentaries where if, uh, you know, a black person is, you know, have to be walking that the, you know, caddy rollers or the overseers or any of those uh, unsavory folk could just kind of ask for where are your papers, you know. So to me, I cherish the manumission papers because I, I just know how rare that would have been. And to, you know, have some manumission documents from Maryland uh, from the 1830s, 1840s, where it does name the ancestor, you know, I could just know what um, that would have meant to that to that person to have gotten that document to have, you know, and many times like the, the patty rollers would, you know, not even honor, you know, the freedom pass, you know, that, that, that they would see. But, you know, just to, to know what it meant to the ancestor and to have it and cherish it and be able to share that, I think that's probably some of the more most precious, you know, items that I have. Yeah, we found a picture of your uh, Frederick Douglass book online. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that's a pretty high on your treasured list. Yeah, yeah. Is that I, an I original? Oh, uh, yes, okay. yes. I, I have several, you know, first edition, you know, books during slavery period, uh, first edition narratives, uh, Frederick Douglass narrative, um, you know, 12 Years of Slave, Solomon Northrop. Again, before that was even a movie, um, now it had been a movie in the early 80s. But I do have a first edition of that. Uh, you know, several other, um, you know, numerous first edition books. Uh, I think uh, in terms of my first edition, it's probably Instincts in the Life of a Slave Girl, um, Harriet Jacobs. So that's one of the few um, slave narratives that were written by a, um, a female. And the story of Harriet Jacobs is, you know, she actually had escaped from her captor, but had then lived, you know, surreptitiously in the attic um, for about seven years. 
you know, and this is, you know, well before, you know, um, your other stories of people who have escaped and lived in, in different different places, um, you know, having been abused on the plantation and then having been lived there, you know, um, unbeknownst to the family. So I, I think that that's a fantastic story, uh, instance in the life of a slave girl, and that would, you know, that would have been the 1840s, 1850s, and, um, you know, she wrote her narrative and, you know, obviously then became a successful person herself after um, the slavery period was over. But, you know, something like that is just very um, personal to her because I know what, what our ancestors had to go through and what they had to endure and then to actually not only have and hold something that they've written themselves, but to at least then get the understanding, you know, first-handedly from them. You know, you know, talking about uh, what slaves had to endure, are you uh, familiar with the uh, the Colored Women and Faith Home in New Orleans, a home that was established for elderly women who had uh, been enslaved and uh, were kind of down on their luck? They were usually uh, rag pictures and such and uh, had to eat old scrapes, they begged. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You familiar yeah, with that history and, and enlighten yeah. our audience on that. Yes, um, you know, somewhat familiar with it, and I saw the recent posting, um, you know, of the research that just the Freedom had, had done. And similarly, you know, there are so many of those stories that are unknown just in terms of even after slavery ended, you know, 1865, if you look to it officially, and then you went into the period of Reconstruction, which was short-lived. It only, you know, lasted for about 10 years. And then you went into the whole thing with the black codes and the rise of the Klan and all of the small gains that we had achieved during the Reconstruction era, which were significant, but nonetheless, you know, were short-lived because in 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, you know, all of the powers that be in politics that go on and politics that go on, you know, took away all of those um, gains that we made. And, you know, towards the turn of the century when it went, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, when it then became by law, decree of the Supreme Court, you know, separate but equal. So obviously the rise of the self-help groups, and that's when we had to, you know, of course, then still try to do for ourselves as we've always done. But going back to the point you made, it, it, it's so unfortunate that, you know, we were then just left to our own wilds, but unfortunately left to our own wilds with nothing. And also now, when you've tried to make some gains and some achievements, those are taken away from you, very, be it legislatively, be it legally and be it illegally by, you know, hate groups such as the Klan or, you know, politics and politicians that want to take our rights from us. And, you know, so it's just very unfortunate. I'm glad that that's being brought to light because there's so many unfortunate stories of just how, you know, these older ladies who had been enslaved and now were of quote-unquote no use were now just left and abandoned. And this would have been the 1870s, 1880s. So people don't think about that per se, but I do like the fact that, you know, this does bring that awareness just to, again, the fortitude of our ancestors and what we've had to endure, what we've gone through, and, you know, what we've achieved in that regard. And, you know, those kind of, you know, benevolent societies and, and self-help groups that were then instituted always showed our capacity 
to, you know, keep our humanity and our capacity to help ourselves, even when other people outside forces, you know, the, the, the politics as it were, were not helpful to us, we then, you know, continue to do for ourselves. So, you know, I thought it definitely brought light to that, and I was appreciative and, you know, glad to see your, your highlight and focus of that for sure. Yeah, I'd like to uh, highlight uh, one of those ladies further. Uh, I'd like to read a passage uh, from an interview, uh, and I quote, Sister Moore, I'm Kitty Lewis. The Lord showed me in a vision that I must come and help you take care of these babies, as she called the old slaves. I am old, but I have good health and know how to cook. And I want to help you missionaries that the Lord has sent down into this low ground of sorrow. Now I'm ready to go to work. And was this what she said in a very direct, it was a business-like way. And I accepted her as God's gift. She did not ask for any money. And dear Kitty certainly was a godsend and remained as long as I had charge of the home. Um, there is also, you might remember, uh, a film called Contradictions, uh, Contradictions of Fair Hope by Pastor Merkelson. And it was a film depicting the mutual help uh, organizations that were started soon after emancipation, mm-hmm. uh, self-help groups and whatnot. Um, now, you mentioned earlier emancipation are the um, the travel passes mm-hmm. that you have, the ammunition papers. Are those on display or exhibits somewhere that our listeners could get to? I don't currently have an, a standing exhibit, you know, for, you know, those at this point. With, with my collection, and again, it's privately owned, so usually I'm working with different museums or different institutions and supporting their causes. Uh, you know, there are, there are several different initiatives that might be ongoing that they will, you know, contact me and we'll establish in terms of that the items will be on loan for different exhibitions ongoing. Um, there is a museum that I consult with. I've been one of their chief consultants in South Carolina that does have not only parts of my collection, but also Danny Drain. He's another collector from New York. He had started the Slave Relics Museum in Waltzboro, South Carolina. So I do have some artifacts that are in permanent exhibition down at the Slave Relics Museum, and they're on line between Waltzboro, South Carolina. Most of my other artifacts, again, from slavery-era artifacts to Marcus Garvey, UNIA pieces, to Harlem Renaissance uh, documents, to segregation pieces, Klan pieces, uh, civil rights, as I mentioned, the original 1968 I Am a Man poster from, you know, from the Memphis with Martin Luther King to my Black Panther um, items documenting ephemera, they usually stay traveling with different museums or different institutions that we usually get booked. And at the current time, I don't have any um, things that are traveling at this point, but usually that kind of comes as different bookings come, come available. What I've, over the past maybe few year and a half, 
have been doing were certain lobby exhibits and doing those exhibitions that were complementing various artists that were doing very significant work. I recently had a Ruben Santiago Hudson, the great actor, the award-winning actor, recently had a play entitled Your Blues Ain't Sweet Like Mine in New Jersey, and I was able, you know, he's a personal friend, and I was able to support his play by setting up a lobby exhibit with the artifacts for to complement the play that was in March, uh, actually April, April 23rd, uh, down in okay. Jer- Jersey. So usually they're kind of by, um, by contracting, usually they're kind of on demand in terms of, you know, different things that are all going at the time. And I try to keep people posted either through Facebook or through my website as to what other initiatives that I'm trying to help or, or, or support. Yeah, and we want to get that contact information before we um, sure. get off the air. Sure. Uh, but you mentioned talking about South Carolina. <laughs> and I think Ooh. you mentioned that you might have some clan artifacts. Uh, do you have other Confederate artifacts from South Carolina or anywhere in the deep south, Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, et cetera? Um, in terms of the Klan things, I have a an original Klan robe. I have uh, Klan tokens um, that were from, you know, issued to members in good standing uh, of the Klan. Um, several documents from the turn of the century, uh, an application that would have been what a clansman would have had to have filled out um, to gain, gain, gain access to it. And several books from the 1870s, and also to the um, there was an 18 mid 1870s there was a big um, congressional hearing investigation into the Klan activities in all of those states that you mentioned. And, uh, a lot of people don't know that there were some inquiries into it through the United States government. And those are big, thick, bound editions. They are on, you know, um, at the National Archives, but I actually have several of those. And when I say big, they 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 about 600 pages each volume. But it's actually the government testimony and investigation, if you will, into clan activities in those um, in those areas, and I I have about maybe six of those first editions from the eight, about 1872 1873. So as you mentioned, in terms of um, documenting ephemera that actually you know look into and are uh, just a wealth of value in resource, yes, those those would be something that I would you know having you know researchers can actually you know have access to you know to that or to to work with that for exhibition. Yes, um, can you talk to us about the uh, connection that Denmark Bessie has with uh, South Carolina and uh, the scene of the massacre there recently? Sure, sure. Well, you know, definitely all due, you know, respect to the sacrifice of the Emanuel Nine for, you know, the what, again, just another tragedy and atrocity that, that we've been subjugated to. And uh, I've had the opportunity to visit South Carolina on several occasions. In fact, I happen to have been down in South Carolina uh, doing some work with the Slave, Slave Relics Museum, which is in Walterboro which is about half an hour 
uh, west of Charleston. So I happened to have been down there about two weeks before the tragedy, ironically. But um, Denmark to say, in terms of as a leader in his community, um, you know, started and would have been very successful in terms of a slave revolt, or as they call it, you know, in terms of the insurrection, you know. Um, the unfortunate thing that it was compromised by not only the weather, but also in terms of several of the, you know, participants that would have been with the rebellion actually then deciding that they were, you know, going to speak about it when the rebellion didn't take place on the evening that it should have. So, but, but South Carolina is rich with that kind of history that, you know, we don't know about, and it's incumbent upon us to know that. Unfortunately, a lot of it is being highlighted now because of the tragedy, but, you know, I usually, you know, tell, you know, folk that, you know, I encourage when people, you know, look to some of those, they call them slave insurrections, but again, it's a fight for freedom. So, exactly. it's from, you know, Denmark to say, or do it to Matt Turner or Gabriel Prosser, you know, you know, in terms of just some of the key names, but there were so many names that are either A, lost to history, or B, they're just under the surface, and we just need to dig it up a little bit more and do that due diligence, do that research, so that we, we, we don't wait for a time of tragedy to then look to our history. We always know our history, and again, we should always then embrace the history and be able to share the history, because, you know, if we don't do it, who will, but past that, I really don't want anybody to necessarily do what I need to do for me because we need to bring it out for ourselves on our own behalf, you know, to yeah. let everyone give us the recognition and dignity that it and we deserve. I'm in complete uh, agreement with that. Uh, do you have any artifacts around the six black men that rolled with John Brown? Um, a friend of our show here, Isaac Washington, is uh, doing a play We'll have a play premiering here on Osborne Terry, one of those black men who rode with uh, John Brown, and it's going to be featured at the National Black Theater Festival in North Carolina very mm. soon. Uh, do you have any artifacts on the others? Uh, no, unfortunately, no. Yeah, unfortunately, no. I mean, so many things are so rare and hard to get that I'm just, you know, very happy when I can get anything, you know, in relation to like, there's so many things I'd love to get. But again, you know, it is, you know, private when I say that to say that all of it is out of pocket when I'm buying things. And, and, I, and I like that only because, um, you know, it, it keeps the control, if you will, with me. I'm not beholden to any organization. I'm not beholden to any historical society. And I say that, just, you know, just to say that, you know, that's when, to me, is the truest expression of our freedom when we're not beholden to anyone. So, you know, if the artifacts are mine, it's not that they have to get permission to go somewhere or I have to get clearance to go somewhere or I have to wait for a grant, you know, in terms of being able to exhibit it. Not that those things are necessarily wrong, but again, it limits the access. So, you know, having things that, you know, a person may personally own, it's a harder road to hold for sure, but also, too, it gives a certain degree of autonomy and a certain degree of freedom that yeah. one can then support a bunch of causes. So direct to your question, unfortunately, no. love to have any of those things. And, and, but, again, a lot of those things do become very pricey. 
And even as an individual private collector, usually I'm, you know, obviously competing against um, institutions that are obviously well-funded, um, museums, of course, and also people that, you know, actually have, you know, obviously a lot more access to, you know, cash than I might have. So, you know, some of those things I okay. aren't fortunate to get, but, you know, we try as best we can when we can to, to get what we get and to, um, you know, give it to do do regard. Okay. Um, I want to mention to our audience that uh, the gentleman that I mentioned, Osborne Perry, um, the play that's coming out is based on a book that he wrote. And the mm. name of that book is Soul Survivor. And mm. uh, he was a soul survivor of those individuals that rode with John Brown at Harper's Ferry. Uh, they set off the Civil War. Excuse me. One of the last questions: uh, How did you make connections with the Schomburg and all the folks and pro- uh, projects uh, that we read about in your bio? Oh, the, Schom- the Schomburg folk. I've been um, affiliated with the Schomburg. Uh, you know, always. You know, as a young person, you know, in my twenties, doing research there. But um, they had uh, about two thousand, two thousand one. They had about two thousand. Um, Howard Dodson, who was the director of the Schomburg at the time, was um, staging a major exhibition um, called Lest We Forget the Triumph Over Slavery. And a lot of people still remember and regard it, you know, one of the most major um, exhibitions on slavery, the enslaved period of enslaving, and the reconstruction that was done, um, Lest We Forget the Triumph Over Slavery. And uh, the complimentary book, the book that went along with it, was called Jubilee. Um, long story short, I was very fortunate. I was a young collector at the time. Uh, I just started really focusing, but you know, when focusing, I also had the um, ancillary um, related research with it. And there was a known collector, a noted collector who's like a mentor, Dr. Sam Pittman, who's passed now. Um, he was in his 70s at the time. But um, he actually kind of embraced me and what I was doing just in terms of meeting me at a lecture. But, you know, actually having, you know, I guess impressed by what I was trying to do in my collection at time. So long story, the Schomburg had known about Dr. Pittman and reached out to Dr. Pittman. He had a brownstone up in Harlem that had, and he was phenomenal. He was a professor, millionaire himself, and you know, had a phenomenal collection. So when they had reached out to him in terms of trying to, you know, amass and to stage this exhibition in addition to the buildings they had, he had mentioned uh, me as a, you know, newer collector coming up at the time. And, I was appreciative of that, and they looked at, you know, I asked for a few of my items, and um, I'd shown them some of the things that I'd had, and, you know, they, they, you know, were, I guess, impressed with it. So I was very fortunate to have, you know, had one of my first major exhibitions, you know, with the Schomburg Center. I couldn't have asked for it any better, and that would have been 2000 to 2001, um, lest we forget the triumph over slavery. And, you know, after that event, you know, I met Maya Angelou, and I was very fortunate to meet the Schomburg family. And, you know, um, you know, I'm sure your viewers know about the history of, you know, Toro Schomburg as a, you know, an African and African-based person of Puerto Rican descent, uh, you know, who actually found one, founded the founder of the Schomburg Center in terms of his items being sold to the New York Public Library in 1925, which was the foundation of the Schomburg Center. So in meeting the Schomburg family, 
um, I was just very honored and privileged and just bringing the story kind of full circle. I've, I've you know, kept in contact with the family and Asia Schomburg, um, who's a fantastic person. She's actually the president of the Schomburg Corporation. Uh, the Schomburg is now under the leadership of Cleo, Dr. Cleo Muhammad, who's doing a great job, a fantastic job. You know, he, he took over from, um, you know, after Howard Dutch retired, and he's doing a fantastic job, uh, Dr. Muhammad. Asia Schomburg is the president of the Schomburg Corporation, which is one of the advisory organizations to the Schomburg Center. And about a few years ago, you know, we've kept in contact, and she asked me if I would, um, you know, sit on her board. And I was very pleased and honored, you know, knowing, you know, her knowing, I guess, my background or commitment association with the center. So, you know, I'm glad to be of service to them. So I'm, you know, proudly sit as a member of the Schomburg. I'm actually a trustee on the Schomburg Corporation. And, you know, get a chance to work with them, especially in terms of some advisory capacity or supportive of the work that Dr. Cleo Muhammad is, um, you know, doing with the Schomburg, with the Schomburg Center, and, you know, bringing it, you know, into Schomburg 90 now. Uh, uh-huh. It's going to have a big gala, you know, in terms of the 90th year. So I'm, you know, just very proud, pleased and proud of not only what I can do to aid and assist, but just what they're doing and what they've done done for sure. So I, you know, I definitely appreciate, uh, you know, Asia, you know, looking out in terms of, uh, you know, having me join with them and just, again, the work that, you know, Dr. Muhammad and his staff are doing for sure. Okay. And talk to us about your connections with Roots, TV project. With the Roots? Yeah, Roots, yes. Right. They, when they had done Roots 25, um, I think there was just, um, it's interesting because Roots initially was on ABC TV, but at the 25th anniversary, and again, I don't know how Hollywood did it, but NBC was actually the network that staged the Roots 25. And I just kind of got a call from one of the producers, Leonard Productions, um, you know, random call. I guess they had, you know, done some research and what have you. But um, I got in the call and checked them out, and they were one of the um, one of their producers of an actually an African American production company that was doing part of the production for the NBC series. So they got a chance to to meet. They came to New York and they met, and we we chatted, and I shared with them some of the things that I had had slavery related. So I was just very pleased to be part of that process. They, if if anyone remembers seeing it, some of the um, still shots of the shackles were from my collection and we actually shot those and they came out very nicely and you know but mm-hmm. we actually shot those in Central Park you know ironically sure. you know we, we shot them using you know one of the large stones the bedrock of New York as the backdrop on it and it came out very powerful in terms of just how they did it but you know I was just pleased to again be supportive of you know anything that's being done on behalf of our cause on behalf of our people for sure. Okay, I uh, would like to get your contact information now. How can our listeners uh, see anything that you might have online, and if they want to contact you directly, how would they go about doing that? Sure, sure. Well, I'm actually on Facebook now. I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook as Sankofa Exhibit, S-A-N-K-O-F-A Exhibit, E-X-H-I-B-I-T. Uh, my company is called Sankofa Exhibit Consultants, uh, again, S-A-N-K-O-F-A, Exhibit Consultants. And I have a Facebook page with Sankofa Exhibit Consultants. Uh, my website, I have two websites. So one is 
www.slavehistory.org, S-L-A-V-E-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y.org, and also the other website is www.sankofa.nyc. Sankofa.nyc. They both will lead the same way. And my email address is gene.peters, that's G-E-N-E dot Peters, P-E-T-E-R-S, at Farmingdale, F-A-R-M-I-N-G-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U. Gene dot Peters at Farmingdale dot E-D-U. So, you know, I definitely, you know, love to hear from, you know, the viewers in terms of any, um, you know, point-specific information that I can, you know, hopefully share. And if I do not know, definitely hopefully point, you know, folk in the right direction. Don't don't know it all, but, you know, definitely would like to know and learn more. And what I do know, definitely willing to, to share and just to, you know, help people on the journey of, um, of our history as you've done and as, uh, you know, Leslie has done. And, you know, as you continue to do with the gist of freedom, for sure, I appreciate all the work that you folks have done and continue to do, definitely. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to visit with us here at the Gist of Freedom. And uh, we wish you well, and I'm sure we'll have you uh, back on the show sometime in the future. I appreciate that. You know, anything that you need, definitely let us know. And, um, you know, for sure, we, we've been trying to make this connection for a week because, you know, Leslie and I have mutual friends, but the schedule did not allow previously. But, you know, we're glad it finally did allow. And definitely I'll make myself available to you for sure and uh, definitely regards and blessings. Okay. We certainly appreciate that, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate okay. to you and all your viewers. You got it. Great. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it, folks, another edition of The Gift of Freedom. Um, we certainly appreciate your tuning in. My name is Preston Washington, and I've been your host. I'm located out of Kansas City, Missouri. I do a lot of genealogy work. And um, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>